What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my guest is multiple Grammy award-winning, multiple ACMA award-winning, multiple CMA award-winning, member of the Grand Old Opry, legendary, one of the greatest ever, Mr. Brad Paisley. Thank you for being here, sir. It's a, it's an honor, really it's, an honor. The honor is really mine, buddy. And uh, you say, yeah, as you say, member of the Grand Old Opry, I, it just occurs to me, have you played it? I've played it one time. I, played I bet one- you blew their socks off. They didn't know what to expect. <laughs> um, I was, you know, uh, I was invited by an, an artist named uh, 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 Chase Bryant. Yeah, I know Chase. Well, yeah. he's great. And he's like, hey, man, come play on this tune. So I'm like, okay. So I grab a Les Paul and a Tube Screamer, and I jam it into one of those Silver Face Deluxes, and, and I set it all for stun. And I'm not sure if they were used to that kind of behavior, but they, <laughs> they, seem, they seem to like it. I, they, well, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't kick me off. You know, but haven't invited me back. So I think I'm a, all I right. Bro- well, I'm in, I'm inviting you back. You got to do it with me sometime. I would be honored. Thank but you. you. I want you to you got to learn and sing. You know, one of your countryish things and play telly and do something nuts. Not a problem. Not we'll, a problem. We'll, I, we'll do some instrumental or something. We'll do you know, uh, one of those yakety yakety acts or something. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's it's always fun to break it. By the way, my 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 compliments on your music room. You have a Whitman sampler. Always something, you know. Thank you. I, uh, I. This is my. This is my haven. This is our farmhouse with uh, studio. And I don't know if you can see. I can lift that. There's like studio guitars over here. Basses lined up. Amp amp rack over there. That's right. You know. There's a. This used to be a bedroom. And in there, I wish I could walk this mic through there. But in there, there is. I've got all my amps in a. In what would have been some sort of powder room in a bathroom. It's right. the strangest, but there's no parallel walls in this house. I mean, this thing, like you can see the ceiling in this bedroom is just way up there. And right. like, this was the craziest, weirdest bedroom ever. This is a hundred year old house. Right. And this, this was built in the eighties, this room, but the, there's this bathroom and off of the guitar amp room, it's the master bath is about five feet deep. Mm-hmm. with dueling sinks and a big mirror and about 25 feet tall wow. and a shower in the end of it. Like it, so it's literally this 25 foot echo chamber with a shower and a door. Perfect. So I got a stereo ribbon mic. And so that's the room sound. And it's one of the better echoes. It's at least a second and a half of echo. You got to think, I mean, whoever designed that bathroom, probably did it themselves going, Hey, I, I did a, I did a pretty good job with this, you know? Oh, absolutely. They were so proud. And it's literally that way because the staircase is between this vocal booth and it's directly behind this vocal booth. So there's the, there's a staircase behind that. And then they had like five feet for a bathroom, but they designed me the best reverb tank they could have asked. I could have asked for. You know, what do you um, what do you like to do as far as recording? Do you like to use a big amp? Do you like to use a small amp or combination of both? Almost, almost always, you know, Vox's thirty watt and less. Um, I do have a couple of I've got a couple of blues. I've got a great blues breaker two twelve. Um, that's a great fifty water. I've got a couple of. I find that. Sometimes that's a great thing to to push that air, but really 
Beyond about 50 watts, I don't know if there's a big difference. It's sort of like you're pushing air anyway, and you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I always, I, if you took a, a good running 50 watt amp, a 50 watt Marshall, set it next to a 100 watt, the perceived volume in the room isn't that much louder with the 100 watt. It just, there's a little bit more clean headroom, but it's not going to, it's not going to yeah. move all like, you know. I deep. like the tube coupling in a, 100 watt marshall that sound is great but i don't record with that that often i have i mean my main recording amps a rocket i've got one of the rockets that ken fisher made and i've also got a liverpool which is a great dirty amp right that this was uh what was benny's last name he was a blues art i bought it when he passed away in new jersey he was a blues artist had the liverpool it was built you know how ken would build them for the guy and it was built for this strat playing blues artist and it is a single coil perfect train wreck you know yeah i had a i had a i had an experience with ken when i was a kid what'd you do (laughs) i was i was basically i was playing this little blues club and he was there and he said hey man and my father's then he's like hey man come down i make amps and all the local blues guys maybe this guy benny you're talking was there and he was like he's like you got to go check out ken's Ken's amps. I'm like, okay, cool. So the next day, my dad and I drive over to his house, and we go to his mom's house. He lived in the basement of his mother's house, and and he's got an Express, a Liverpool, and a Rocket. And again, I was a Strat guy at the time. I plugged it in. I go, this is fantastic. And he goes, I'll make you, I'll make you any one of these amps, fifteen hundred bucks. Right? This is ninety one. Yeah, that's a lot then, especially for a child. I was like 14 years old and you know, I thought I was really cool cause I had a twin and a super and basically my father talked me out of it. Right. Well, I don't know if rightfully so, but he was like, he's like, you know, you could buy like a Plexi Marshall and still have enough money to get like a, like a tweed deluxe or something. And I said, yeah, I'm going to do that. And I never had the amps built, you know, That's but too was, bad. I know they're, they're just so, I mean, they're, they're so rare. They're actually they're much rarer than Dumbles. They're much rarer than most everything. It's just because, Mm-hmm. One man operation, and and he was way less interested in. I mean, in Dumble, you know, Dumble's sort of like his philosophy isn't necessarily how many can he make either. But Dumble makes a lot more amps than Ken did. Ken would obsess over it and get just really like almost have a nervous breakdown every time he had to build one. I think, and um, you know, it's it's been. But he contributed so much, I think, to that thing, to that Britishy boutique thing that um you know like dr z builds me we we with ken's collaboration ken was already not really building many amps by the end so he collaborated with z on this z rec that we make which i think is as close as you can get to something like the rocket and and it's such a great i've got one sitting over there that I, i use all the time too to record it's such a great um version of that kind of thing but you know z is he'll make something he can z can make thousands of those because he tweaks them for for the parts that allow you to buy it for 1500 bucks now right as opposed to like only using one-off like rare capacitors that you can't find anymore that were you know german or something and he knows how to tweak an amp to make it sound its best and even using modern tubes which aren't the best thing you know, I was I I've, I've had amp techs like repair amps for me, and they go like, "Listen, I put some old tubes in." I go, "Here, take them back." Right. I said, "I need stuff. I need to be able to buy a guitar center because this thing is being moved every day." Yes. I mean, how, how um 
how do you find having like because you know the, when I saw you on the Tonight Show a few years ago, you mm-hmm. had you had a super lead marshal and you had the the rig. I mean, you have to cover so many bases in your show because you have such a vast catalog, so many records. I mean, is there is there is there sometimes a time you go like, man, I wish I could just plug in this one thing and, and do and, and do the gig, or do you, you you kind of pin to the catalog going. I got to like deliver for the fans these sounds and these tones that they've they've come to associate with you that you invented. Well, I think you know it's I yeah you you find yourself kind of going. Well, I mean we've got I got a rack full of the effects that are necessary uh, and a switching system, so I'm not going through them. I hate going through effects if I'm not using them. Um, right. And at the time, and so it's like I make sure it's like that that basic sound really comes down to and I've seen you talk about this comes down to coupling two amps together at all times and it's also smart when you're like you and I if our rig goes down the show's over <laughs> it's literally folks go get something to drink right now cuz I can't figure out we we had the rig go down on the Nashville drive-in show I guess it'd been sitting in storage since you know February right and my switcher died yeah. Like middle of, and so he's over there flipping like to the B rack, this kind of whole thing, because they're vamping on the latest song, which starts with kind of like a distorted yeah. kind of rhythm part. And so my my rhythm guy's playing that, and I'm going, it's that, it's literally spinal tap at this moment with the airplanes coming in on the, you know, wireless. And, and I'm thinking, and it felt like, it felt like five minutes to me. It was it was about twenty five seconds. Twenty five, right? But I thought, oh shit, what are, what is what are we gonna do? Right. Like I wouldn't be able to do the encore. Can you imagine what a downer it is? Is the crowds cheering? they re- it's your first encore since you since the pandemic started. Uh, You're yeah. ready to kill them. It's your new single, and it's like what the hell? And it breaks then, and I'm like, what am I gonna do? And then it came on, and they fixed it, and I was able to play. So the t- but the two amp thing that's the rare time when like the switcher went down, so neither none of the amps worked for a second. But like I always use two. It's kind of like airplane engines. They're sort of, you know, yeah. it's redundancy, but right. they sound better together too. Like I find like if you take a Z rack, if I pair the Z rack with something like Z also makes an amp for me. That's my honestly I think my favorite amp I've ever plugged into called a db4 and he's actually not calling it that anymore because he got somebody wanted him to change the name but you know that goes but the amp itself is kind of a it's a pentode preamp type uh class a circuit and it's the thickest single note ac30 thing you could ask for they're way thicker than even like the the four four input black panel early ac30s right like the notes for a for a tele player, the notes have harmonics and you don't need, you know. But when you pair that with a Z Rec and you mic both amps, um, that there's something about the gaps get filled in. And if I have that and a couple of distortion pedals, I could play a show and be right. fine. You know. Um, how how um how important is articulation in your playing? Like what my kryptonite is too much gain, too much squish. And I like it where the immediacy of the guitar almost mirrors 
the guitar unplugged where every note I can, cause I have, yeah. I, it's, it's, it's just, I have no Alan Holdsworth in me. I have right. no auto zero. So right. if, if it gets into that, I'm like, I'm, I might as well just, just go sit in the audience. Mine is, mine's some combination of clarity on the high end. Like mm -hmm. you say that, but see at the same time, I don't, I've never really used a compressor as a tele player. Right. Um, I will on certain songs in the studio to do something interesting, but I don't like, I'm one of the rare tele players in Nashville that doesn't stick a CS2 or a Dynacomp in the front part of the chain. Um, I, anytime I would do that, I'm losing the expressiveness of something like blue speakers, the, like the Vox blues right. and the sag that comes from, and, but that only comes after about, like you know 11 o'clock on the volume knob on an ac30 right so if i'm below 11 i sound like i'm playing through a practice amp to me right and if i'm above 12 it starts to get like like you say there's no definition but there's that sweet spot on something like a class a amp where the notes bloom and it's still clear but I gotta have some hair too. Like uh, as a telly player, I'm not the kind of I'm not um, I'm not Brent Mason on an Alan Jackson record. I am way more like way more Tom Petty than that. Yeah, I mean there was the, there was that guy um, uh, Jerry Jerry Donahue. It almost sounded yes. like, and I, and I think he used to plug straight into the console. Jorgensen told me that he was like, yes. yeah, he just like a like a Yuri LA2A or something, and he plugged straight into like I mean that was clean clean. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. And when you'd see, like, did you ever, did you go watch the Helicasters play, ever? I saw him one time at the Nam show years and years and years ago. It was amazing. 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 I got to see him at uh, um, Ace of Clubs in Nashville when they right. came through. That was when I was in college. It was a religious experience. It was like because Jorgensen is who I wanted to be. Right. Like that is literally who I wanted to be. Like if I. He's what I call my broken arm guitar player. I ever right. break my arm, All right. you're gonna get to come see John Jorgensen. I'm gonna make, I'm gonna pay him and make him learn my parts, and then I'm just gonna sing and be like, "How should I have done that, John?" <laughs> you know what I mean? And he'll do his own thing, and and uh, but that's who I wanted to be. This was a guy in the '80s. Here's everybody playing through like a boogie preamp and a Lisas multiverbs and whatever, and you know, and yeah. he plugs into a dd2 and a reverb pedal and the top boost channel of an ac30 and plays all those D buck owens sounding desert rose band things and it was like holy cow yeah mind-blowing um yeah. I, you know i made a wreck with him last year and you know just at dinner and i was like you know i try not to be like the super fan boy but i, ha I had to i mean i've known him for years i said you know john when i was a kid i learned orange blossom special he goes, oh, man, did you use the DD2, which is the boss D delay? I go, what delay? And he, and he goes, delay? he goes, you don't know the trick? And I said, there you that, go. That's number, that's, that's delay pedal number one for me. Yeah. And he goes, you don't know the trick? I go, what do you mean the trick? I learned it in real time. I thought he was playing all the notes. He goes, no, I'll show you tomorrow. So the next day he comes in with the, he's got the delay and he goes, watch, you pick every other one and the delay does the other stuff. I'm like, are you kidding me? 
right? I want to hear I, I want to hear your version of that, how you think it was played, because that's that's the beauty is when we do these tricks in the studio. Sometimes, you know, there's some kid in Iowa that's learned how to do it. It's like that's three guitar players. No, that I, I just do it this way. <laughs> you know what I mean, right, right. And, and, you know, it, back then it was the mystique because, you know, like the YouTubes and, and all the the instruction, it was just like it was it was tapping the needle on a record player. It was hitting the, the you know, the the fast version of the, the rewind on the tape deck. And then you go back and try to I mean, I, do you think what are the advantages and dis- disadvantages of like the YouTube generation of where all this information is just it's a couple of keystrokes away and you can yeah. actually figure out, you know, what they actually did versus your interpretation of what they what what they did. Well, I think it's caused some guys to get obsessive. You, you meet them daily, right? On online, where they're sort of like telling you you're wrong, which is fun. <laughs> but um, you know, Joe, that's not how you do that. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and, I, and that's that's okay. But I feel like I feel like in oh, in all, it's good because they. I think anything that leads to creativity is a good thing. I definitely think it's different, though. It leads to less interpretation and more, um, you know, sort of precision. And I'm not sure that's good for music always. But I also wonder why on earth some of the most popular things, like, to do with something like YouTube and guitarists. When you watch guitarists on something like Instagram and they're posting things. Right. It's very rarely something from the last decade. Right. It's very rarely something from the 90s. Yeah. It's like literally 80s, 70s, 60s. It's some of this stuff that's like, it's like what has happened that the most popular stuff to learn and play and jam to is not on the radio in any way, shape, or form, like in other than classic. You know, right. like why aren't people making music? that has guitar solos in it right that and so in that sense i'm baffled by youtube should have awakened that because there are there still aren't solos in music other than me and you and john mayer right keith urban that's about it i mean if you're not the lead player and the singer they're telling you get that out of there yeah because you know i i i asked a radio guy one time at a radio conference and i said like like tell me like okay give give me your analytics like what why we why do we hear these songs and and if you listen to classic rock radio and and you drive 50 miles out of town and you pick up the next classic rock radio station it's almost an identical playlist it's like the the radiotron 2000 you know auto dj and yeah. well they do they do polling well they'll call people and they'll say, hey, do you like Led Zeppelin? Yes, of course I like Led Zeppelin. Hey, do you like Foreigner? Yes. And then they're asked to name a song, and they can only think of the songs that they've heard on the radio. So hence, it it, it just kind right. of propels it that way, you know? And, and, yeah. and that's, all, that's all you hear. You don't hear the B-sides. You know, there's no late night DJs anymore where they're just going, they, they, they can play anything they want at 2.30 in the morning because they figure nobody's listening. I mean, it, it's, it's changed. Um, I think guitar solos still have meaning i mean you you've proven that you know what i mean i've proven that sometimes they shouldn't be there all right (laughs) sometimes it's just awful sometimes i look back i look back on some of those records it's like oh that's too much i shouldn't have done it's not tasteful at all you're right well i mean we're still guitar players you know i mean it's you gotta you gotta do it um tell me about like 
tell me about your telly. Because I know I texted the other day, I go, no tellies are safe. I, I recently just discovered the story of your main Paisley Telecaster, which I can see. And this is one of, is one of two, I only own two actuals. Right. Now, is this that the is, one that was originally black? No, that one is downstairs. That's my second. This one, um, this is original old pink. Look, it's missing. See yeah. the paper? It's missing some spots. It's been missing that since I got it. Glacier super glued what's left. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the front was in good shape. But when I got this thing, it wasn't it wasn't copper. See that copper? Right. There's no pink left. Now on the sides you see the pink a little right. bit red. But um this I saved up until um I think it was in nineteen ninety five I got this guy. I had just gotten my publishing deal. I had just graduated and was signed as a songwriter at EMI. Right. And um, I think they gave me an advance of like $10,000 advance, you know. Nice Which money. is, hey, that's, that was a bass boat and this. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? I, spent, I think I saved $100 of it. But right. this, uh, this, I went to the, the Arlington Guitar Show and bought this guy. They had two or three Paisley Tellies at that show that year. I went there specifically to buy this. Right. And um, because and I had because mostly I had I had friends like a, a couple of guitar collectors and buddies of mine that were like, you don't have a Paisley telly and you're about to launch a solo career. Are you out of your mind? Right. Yeah. And because and I was born with this name, I didn't change it to Sunburst or anything else. I I uh, but I'm one of the rare artists in the world that that had a signature model four years before I was born. It's, you know, I mean, when I first saw you come out, this was probably in the late 90s. And I was like, who is this guy, Brad Paisley? And it was all of a sudden there was this ripping guitar over great <laughs> songs. And, and it's like Brad Paisley. And then you come out there and you had, I think you had, uh, I want to say you had a matchless amp or a, a Z or something. It was like I a red early. Yeah, I, was, I had a red Vox. That's over there in the corner. Yeah. Um, I had a red Vox and... Um, that was original 63 recovered. And I had this guitar, a DD two and a tube screamer. And that was my original touring rig. I think on our first bus run, I didn't have a spare telly. Nice. Yeah. That would have gone great. Right. That was break a string. You know, everybody go to the restroom. I'll be, be back in a second or play an acoustic song. And how long, how long have you, like, been committed? Because, I mean, you're one of the best B-bender telly players. Now, for any of those out there watching this who don't know what a B-bender is, there's a little device that is on the back. In it. Um, yeah, and I, I use a G almost exclusively. Mine's almost a, mine's a G most of the time, so most see that? Right, yeah. So, Glacier, I actually got the idea to do G from Jimmy Olander. Because most of those Diamond Rio records, he he rarely did the B. He had the double. Right. And the double, the, the B is a sound you know, which is, you know, that thing, that that uh, Clarence White began it. And then, you know, everybody from Skaggs to Steve Warner and everybody else did that. But then when I heard Olander doing the double, but he relied on the G, I thought, I like the G. I was like, the sound of that thicker string bending sounds a little more like throaty low steel guitarish and also um something about it kind of gave it a nastier rock and roll 
more of a, I don't know, something. And, and so I, I had Joe make my first G, um, and I had a guy named Charlie McVeigh build a few. And, and so the, the next thing, you know, I just put these in a bunch of things. I remember when I sent this guitar to Joe, after I bought this guitar, I had to get the G better put in and I sent it to him and I said, I would love a bender in this. And he's like, I don't typically put them right vintage guitars and i'm like yeah but look at it it's missing paper and he's like i'll tell you what you george gruen asks that was in that guitar when you bought it you know you didn't and uh and after that he's had guys send him things and say will you put this in he's like no and 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 i'll say why and he's like is your name paisley right i'm not putting it in a paisley telly unless your name is paisley i'm sorry it's my rule But, you know, one of the things about a bender, uh, you know, and, and it, whether it's palm or whatever, is it it's really you can clam extremely easy if you're not anticipating what that note's going up to. I have I have one B bender. It was it's an old uh, it was old Parsons White that was put in a thin line telly back in the 70s. And I bought it from a friend. And I I'm bet that's there. great. It was it was been in there. So it's the guitar. It was I bought it like that. And I'm sitting there at Abbey Road Studios messing around with it. And I decided I'm going to I'm going to do this guitar solo and I'm going to be like, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, and I'm going to do it. I, I hadn't clammed that much in, a, in, a, in, in any format like Michael Rhodes, Reese Wines, Anton, Fink, they're all looking at me going, what's wrong with you? I go, it's the B-Bender. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, because there's, like, <laughs> there's a few things that you could, that I, I learned how to do. But if you're like if you're just improving and then and then pull the thing down, you could get in some serious modal disregard right there i mean easily and and that's the thing about um the thing about it that i that i keep in mind when i play it is that it's truly about the sound of it yeah it's not about necessarily what it allows you to do because there's very few things that it does i mean you can you, you with something like a g banner you can hold an a chord and pull down and the next thing you know it's a, it's you know you're going up a uh you know but it's like you basically it's the sound it's that sound that's different when you take uh a sus and you burn you know that is a different thing it's mechanical in nature it's steel guitar like and that's what i like about it it's the the sound of it and not and not that it'll like people will say oh man that's that's cheating it's like no it's not i can do most of these things without it it's just it's about signature to me and that's one of the reasons i went with g is i my goal was as a recording artist and a singer and songwriter. But when you throw a guitar player into that, I wanted it to be where you could take my vocals off of a record and know it's me. Right. Like I wanted to have that. Oh, that's him. And I, and the best compliment in the world is when somebody like, like Kelsey Ballerini has a really cool new honky tonk like song out called hole in the bottle. And everybody called me and said, that's you. Right. Which was really fun because it's not, Right. Like, and so then, then she and I ended up collaborating and I was like, let's do a version where I play the solo. Yeah. And I had to go learn the, the solo the guy did who, you know, it was great in that, but I love that, that somebody thinks something's me. That's, that's the ultimate compliment. Right. It's, it's like, if you hit that one B string, you know, it's, and you, you, you twist it and you go, oh, it's BB. You know what I mean? It's right, like, right, right. It's those yeah. fingerprints that you have, you know? Yes. I have a question for you. Um, Bill Crook. Yeah. How did you meet him? And how did you guys come up with the 
the the collaboration on those guitars because you, you know, I mean you had the old one and you're like okay now yep met Bill and, and I mean that's pretty much indelibly linked to you you know absolutely and I and proudly he this is a funny story I was this kid in Wheeling West Virginia my grandfather loved Roy Clark Chet Atkins Merle Travis Johnny Cash Buck Owens that's I thought that stuff was like the stuff that the chicks would flip out over growing up. Cause to me, it's, that was the stuff. I mean, he raised me on that. He was, it was like, I was like some indoctrinated cult member for him. He, I was his first boy in the family. He had girls before that. And he's like, I'm going to teach this kid everything. And he made me listen to those old records. And when I, he gave me my first guitar. And so I, here I am learning things like freight train you know, and, and birth of the blues and stuff that most people watching right now are going birth of the blues. What's that? So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a dork that way. And then I walk into a music store in Wheeling, West Virginia called CA house music. And there's a guy working behind the counter in Wheeling. And, uh, and this guy's name is Bill and he's, and he sees this nine or 10 year old kid come in and I start trying out amps and guitars, you know. Right. And he sees me plug in to an amp and he's expecting, you know, smoke on the water or something. And I, I bust into Freight Train or something. Yeah. You know, windy and warm. And it's right. like, and he's like, whoa, wait a minute. He's like, what the heck? What decade are you from? And, and I said, oh, that's just the stuff my grandpa got me started on. And he's like, what kind of amp you have? I said, I have a Fender Deluxe. He's like, that's good. Because this is the time of the PV special, you know, 130 or whatever. And and he's like, well, wow, that's cool. What a great amp. And he's like, what kind of guitar? And I'm like, I just have a Tokai. And he's like, those are great, you know. And, then, and so he's immediately like um, taken to me. And then he started running sound for shows that I would do when he wasn't on the road with America. Mm -hmm. Um, and he lived around there and he was such a resource, just so smart. And he'd been around the world, but he decided to live in Moundsville, West Virginia. And, and then after I got my record deal, and like I said, I did those first couple shows, uh, my first couple tour dates as a recording artist with a single out with one telly. Right. And he's like, you need a telly. And he's like, I've always wanted to build a telly. I think I'll build a telly for you. So he built me a couple of them. He built me a black Paisley and a maroon Paisley. And a blue, the first one he ever made was a, was a dark blue Paisley, which I still have and still play. And, you know, but he made them better. He knew what I wanted and he made them better than they were making them at the time. Um, you know, it was like the right, the right wood, the right Asher alder, the right, you know, he had to figure out the paper thing. He found a guy that could make a laminate type thing that you could put on. And his first few Paisley attempts the other colors were amazing. The real Paisley didn't hold up and he knew that because it didn't have the foil. But then he figured out recently how to do the foil Paisley and it's killer. Right. Um, and, you know, and that's that's been that's been hard for Fender. Yeah. They have they, they haven't nailed that yet. Um, and uh, anyway, so we he sent me my first few. And the next thing you know, he would come up with ideas and build them and. Or I'd come up with an idea and he'd say, Hey, I got a I've got a carbon fiber looking laminate now. You want that? I'm like, Yep, I do. Ah, yeah. Send me that. Yeah. You know. But you know, like when you know, like when you you're you know, with a name like Paisley, you know, um, 
Have you ever, did it ever, you know, like, because I've seen you play Blackguards, Tellies, and I'm looking at one. Um, when you, when you like, when you go to like, when you, what's your criteria for buying a guitar? What's like, like, what's a, what's a good one? It's like, is it, does it have to be resonant, loud? Is it, you know, did, like, I, I have some guitars that I use on stage that are, that you wouldn't use in the studio because they're, they're just spectacle items. They're just flashy and yep. good for the show and good in a, in a large environment, multiple things going on. Not necessarily like a daily driver. What's what's the criteria? With a telly, um, it's got to for me. I like lighter guitars for the most part. Although some, like a couple of the best ones I have, aren't. But there's something magical about when a neck, the right neck meets the right body, right. and you know when you pick it up, and it's connectivity somehow between them. Um, there's guitars that where you know i've put them together where i bought like a neck and a and an old blackguard body or something and decided to make the right thing out of that you know and make it like return it to i call that a rescue right. you know um sort of like what you do with something like lazarus or lazarus or whatever but it's like you you go and you're like okay i'm gonna get this right and on paper it should i mean it's like a you know three almost four, four pound body light body big old thick neck and for some reason you put that together and they're not right together yeah, I don't know, and and something about for me, it's about snap. If that makes any sense, yes, it's like it's got to as a telly, it's got to snap. It can't, it can't be too tinny, and it can't be too thuddy either. Right. Like snap is the thing. It's like if if those notes do that when you play it, and there's something about the right weight and the right neck um, that makes that happen. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. And in anticipation of that. I actually got this out today. Lazarus. This is Lazarus. This I've always wanted to see that. That's beautiful. How they? That's a great. Who refinished it? Guy named Ken Lafleur at uh, Historic Makeovers did this, and this came to me over over I would say marginal Italian food around Christmas time <laughs> last year. And it, when I got it, it was completely red, but luckily they they had they had not painted in the cavity where you could see the neck. The neck heel, and they didn't paint in here, which are the indelible marks of a '59 Les Paul. Plus, they kept the pots, the pickups, and all the all the pieces. Right. And I was like, I think I kind of know what that is. So I made this guy an offer, and he also brought this thing into a luthier and pointed at a picture out of like Sweetwater, going, "Hey, you used, used to look like this," and he circled it. And it's the Sunburst model. You know, I mean, I think some of the greatest guitars in the world are, like you say, rescues. You know, the ones yes. that are super preserved and like, you know, like white glove museum pieces. Maybe we're like that for a reason. Some of them just were unplayed, but then some were just kind of, they were just kind of just didn't really do much. You know, I mean, do you, yeah. do you collect, do you collect on a museum level or do you, do you, do you, is it more of a, 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 I need a, I need a hammer. I need a screwdriver. I need a saw. I don't look for perfect. I almost don't want, I only have one, uh, like unchanged blackguard telly mm -hmm. that I've got a 53 that's I call it less because it's got the little mailbox letters that say LES. It was less. It was a wonderful old man's guitar who passed away of cancer and his wife's his wife brings it to a concert and she's like, he wanted you to have this. And I'm like, ma'am, you honestly could pay your house off with this. Right. And she's like, I've paid my house off. And I'm like, uh, she, he's like, she, and she threw out a figure. It was ridiculously low. It was like refin price. Yeah. And I'm like, honestly, ma'am, I, I don't feel good 
taking this guitar from you for that price. Let me pay you more. And she's like, no, I don't want more. This is what he wanted. He he said the only person he'd ever sell it to is Brad Paisley. And this is what he'd sell it to you for. He's passed away. Nothing would make me happier than, and I'm like, and I went to my dad who was on the road with me and I said, is this okay? Am I stealing this? Right. And he said, no, she knows what it's worth. She doesn't want what it's worth. She wants you to have it. Don't insult her. Give them, give the woman her money. And then of course the whole family comes in. We all took photos with the guitar. So that's the only one that I've got. That's, you know, all the screws, everything's right. And, but that's, that's a, that's a really nice, great 53, um, which is about as good a year as they ever made. But, you know, in, in some ways, um, I love these ones. One of my favorite, my, one of my favorite guitars of all time came from, I, you know, I love, I have an obsession with blackguards. I just think they are, are, they're the bursts of fenders and it's like this. And, and I know you've got several and you probably feel that way too about them as fenders. And, um, I've got a bunch, I think I'm at, I don't know how many, I think I'm at 15 blackguards and of <laughs> at some, some form or fashion, but I love the rescues. I'm with you. Yeah. Like if somebody changed something and that allows me to change something else, that's not right. Cause these guitars aren't all perfect when you, when they're in their original form, right. they do need new frets. Yes. They all you know, need, they all I don't want to be the one, but if somebody already did it, I'll take it from you. You know what I'm saying? It's like, exactly. Cause I'll get Joe to do it right. They, they it will have good frets, you know? And, but, uh, this one, this is a great story. I, so I started collecting rescued blackguards. Like if somebody, like I say, done the wrong thing at some point in its life. So I walk in a music store and there is this canary yellow no caster. Right. Um, this is a couple of years ago. And it's like, uh, I mean, awful canary yellow, like the wrong yellow. Somebody had refinned it and thought they nailed it, but they didn't. And, and, and uh, I'm like, how much? And they threw out a price, which was just so low, but the music store knew what they had, but they're like, you need to see what's under. So I lift the pick guard and they, somebody at some point had tried to put the Gretsch switch down on the horn and, mm-hmm. you know, under the pick guard and there's a route for wiring and they, you know, like a, like a humbucker at some point, but it, it wasn't really a humbucker. It was more like an ice pick had done the routing, you know, right. covered in a black goop. And I'm oh. like, I'll take it. <laughs> so it's light, you know, Right. So I, I bring so, but at the time I took that off, all I could see was the middle number and you could see the Tadeo writing. It was totally legit. Yeah. So and all I saw was the middle number was 22. So I, I told, I called my wife, we have a deal. I don't spend more than five grand without saying I'm doing it or asking permission. At right. some point she's, she's like, why do we do this? I made the rule for her, not for me. Right. That's so I don't get the bill. <laughs> right. But, but I'll call her and I'll say, there's this guitar. It's, it's going to be fantastic someday. And she's like, we'll get it. So I buy it and I go to meet her at dinner and, um, and the kids are with us. And I said, it's 22. I said, that'd be interesting if it's Huck's birthday. Huck is my oldest son. He's February 22nd. Um, I love the neck dates on these things. So, uh, they go to bed, we go home. I pop the neck and look sure enough two twenty-two fifty-one. Unbelievable. Wow. Uh, so here's what's crazy. So Nacho is a good friend of mine, but at the time I didn't know Nacho yet. And I go, so I go in the Blackguard book and look, I'm like, that's got to be one of the earlier no casters because the neck's not been refinished. It right. is a no caster. So I start reading and it's, there's the telegram and the telegram says on February 20th, 19, 
51, they got the cease and desist from Gretsch. Right. On the 21st, they had a dealer meeting and they said, we're figuring this out. We'll let you know. So on February 22nd, they started cutting the logos. That's cr- Yeah, I'm going to say that should be a broadcast. I mean, for all intents and purposes. Yeah, it's within minutes. And so that has to be day one. That's, you know, and, and the, the best thing is like Leo was so cheap. He wouldn't reprint the logo. They just because I my main black art is a no caster. You could and it was just crudely cut, you know. Yeah, right. And I got I got mine. Some guy walked into Guitar Center in Hollywood and they paid him a little money and it had the humbucker in it. And I, and I walked in after two two tacos, some guacamole, and maybe one too many margaritas. And I go, <laughs> I don't care what that is. I'm 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 in. Yeah, you know? of course. And and it's and it's literally it's literally my best guitar. Tell me, you know, one of the things I always tell upcoming guitar players, I said, I said, everybody can shred. Everybody's everybody's very well versed. The only thing they, they lack sometimes are those pesky things called songs. Right. And, and you have so many of them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read off my personal favorites. Celebrity, Whiskey Lullaby, The Word, and I'm going to and I'm going to miss her because mm-hmm. any songwriter can start with a song. Well, I love her. But I love to fish. <laughs> Born out of truth. That, yes, thank you. Thank you very much. If any any person pitched that first line in this in the six one five area, be like, I'm not calling you back. Well, I'm, that's like when when I had the the hit song "Ticks." A songwriter friend of mine who was driving down the road and heard, you know, I'd like to check you for ticks, and mm-hmm. he got <laughs> so mad he called me, and he was like, "Well, they're just going to let you get away with anything, aren't they?" Right. <laughs> exactly. And I was like, I guess, because I'm, you know, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't think that'd work. But um, it's uh, I'm glad you bring those up. I I had this conversation with John Mayer once after uh, he played Crossroads Festival and I couldn't go. And and uh, I had talked to him like we were talking about something. We were working on something together at the time. And I said, how'd it go? And he said, you realize the importance of songs about halfway through the day. Yeah. He said, because there's only so many pentatonic scales you can take before it's like somebody sing something, give me some words. And then your pentatonic scale means so much more. Yeah, it's the vehicle. And it's, you know, it's, and I, I remember the minute my, my focus went from being a guitar blues rock guy to let me see as good a song as I can write is I remember at North Sea Jazz Festival 2006. Somehow the billing was Steely Dan, myself, and then an artist named India Ari. Yeah, and it was it was one of those big long stages where it would you're setting up while they're playing. Right. And then as soon as they're done playing, the announcer comes on, ladies and gentlemen, and I I swear to God, Kid Charlemagne was still echoing in the hall, and I had to go on, and I go, this uh. I, I can't do this. I I, I need. I need stronger material. I mean, like, when did you figure out, like, you had such a wonderful knack for writing? Because it was like, I mean, it's... Just, well, I haven't figured that out yet, but I think we're all still trying to perfect it, and that's why we write the next one. And I think... But I did find early, early on that when when you perform, like, I realized that people are listening. And I think songwriters forget that people are listening. Right. A lot of songwriters are sort of like, you know, especially the, the struggling ones. It's like, I'm here's what I'm saying, but it's like, no, no, no. There's an audience picture your audience, right? What do you want them to do? 
Because these are instructions. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's like, like with I'm going to miss her, I wanted, well, the reason we wrote that is I had these ballads. I had these love ballads and that was written when I was at Belmont. I was, I was a senior at Belmont and me and Frank Rogers wrote that song and we were both students and I, but I had been accepted into the songwriter showcase at Belmont, but I had two love ballads and that's it. Like that were worth performing. And I'm like, we really, I was like, I need something that breaks these up because I can't do these two in a row. And, and it's like, um, and I was like, what if we write something funny? Right. You know? And so we came up with this idea for I'm going to miss her, which was, you know, and wrote that picturing the audience reaction. And it worked at day one performance, which was. You know, well, I love her, but I love to fish. And they're laughing in the audience. And I, the reaction was this, like the woman going to the guy. See, it's you. It's and weird. Yeah. And there was never once in the performance of that song through the years that it didn't have the same effect on the audience, which was when you get to, she, if I hit that fishing hole today, she'd be gone by noon. Right. Chorus. Well, I'm going to miss her. You know, throw the babies in the air. And I played that over and over again for years. Got my first record deal. Didn't cut it on the first album. Wow. And everybody said, oh, you really need to put that on there. I said, no, no, no. That's a second album song. And they're like, you're out of your mind. I, they said, that's a hit. I said, it's a hit once you respect me. Right. And I kind of said, I'm serious. I'm not doing this first album. So by second album... I wanted it to be the first single off the second album because nothing says this is a new album like that. Like that's like you're used to the love ballad guy, and they yeah. wouldn't do it. They would not single it first, and then something happened at the label, and they messed up something like a promotion thing, and they were apologizing to me. And I said, "Can I have a meeting?" So I went into the Joe Galani, the head of the label, and I sit down, and he's like, "Brad, I I just want to apologize for how we blew this, and you know we'll never let this happen again." It was that, and I said. I tell you what you can do for me. And he's like, what? And I said, you can single. I'm going to miss her. And he's like, oh, Brad. Oh, Brad. No. I, he's like, seriously. And I'm like, will you please just do it? And I said, if you'll just single it, I don't know if it'll go number one or not, because it may not research or do all that, but I guarantee I know the reaction. Right. So he, so he says, all right. So he goes down the hall, says, get it played. And the head of promotion throws his hands in there and says, what? No, that's not, you know. They yeah. put it out within three weeks. My album went from number 36 on the album chart. It ended up being the second single off that record to number two. Right. And it was just people buying it like, like they're buying lures. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. And it, and it, and it, and it was just case in point that that was because and they all thought women would be offended by this song, but I had researched and tested this since 1995 and I knew they wouldn't. Right. Well, you you were like um, I was reading, and you went to school, and you you majored in music business, which right, right. which a lot of times musicians forget yeah, the second yeah. word of the music business is the business part of it, and the the acumen, and like like you said, I find it very interesting. You're like, this isn't a first record song. This is a second record song. I mean, so you already had a vision and some and some, let's just say, analytics going. This song is going to play well for the second record once I'm established, you know, because right. most 
most people were just happy to have a record deal and then go out and say, hey, listen, you guys, you're the record company. You guys know best. But you were you, you were laser focused on where you wanted to go. It's miraculous. It's, I think it's great. Well, it was an interesting thing because I had been such a fan of country music and I had watched the careers of the people I wanted to have a career like, whether that was George Strait or Alan Jackson or Vince Gill or somebody like that. And I had watched as their singles would come out and then the next one would come out and then their album would come out and then the, you know, the journey they went on as artists. And I just figured if you have a, a first single or even second single hit with a song like I'm going to miss her. This town is very has a very short memory, and I'd be the fishing guy. Right. And I, for a minute, was the fishing guy. You wouldn't believe the fishing songs I was pitched after that and didn't cut. Fishing songs. <laughs> hey, he likes the fishing songs. Let's give him those. How, how many how many bass boat-related songs were you pitched? Uh, probably at least 50. 500, probably. 500, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, bass stuff, you know, oh, man, I caught her like a fish. Oh, who knows? Caught her like a fish, whatever. You know, it's like, no, 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 I've done that. Let's get me something else. But no, you know, and and in that sense, I knew that I I wanted to be able to have a a serious ballad and something that says something and also now and then be more of a Roger Miller. Right. How important uh, Buck Owens to you? Oh, I mean, I wore wore my Carnegie Hall T-shirt in your honor. Fantastic. Your favorite favorite country record, um, you know, Buck Owens at Carnegie Hall. And, yes, and damn it, I earned this 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 T-shirt because I paid the IATSE bill when we filmed in there. So yeah, man, I I think it's so cool that you played, you know, and played there and did that. Um, what was that like for you? It was surreal. Yeah, it is the loudest acoustic room I've <laughs> yeah. ever heard. It's like, uh, guys, power soak, please. Well, we did it acoustic, knowing going oh, in. Right, right. But I had drums, right? So I had I had like Anton Fig was playing those. What do they call them? They're like they're like five little sticks, you know, yeah. rum, Bla- you know, blastics, blastics. And he's you know he's got a big heavy foot and snare, but he also's you know as soon as he he hit the snare with one of the one of the light sticks, it was like shooting a gun off. I'm like, yeah. what is going on? So we finally got the mix right, and it was very surreal to walk into Carnegie Hall going, we have two nights here. It was in the middle of a snowstorm. We're shooting a DVD. It was costing a fortune. But I still think that first night is one of the best gigs I've ever been involved in just because of the gravitas of, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're walking around, you're seeing all these photos of people who played there and you're just going, yeah. this is big time, you know, big time. I get from Utica, New York. And I go, I made it to Carnegie Hall, got the t-shirt. Yeah. You know how you get to Carnegie Hall. Yeah, right. But, uh, but, how, what's what's you know what's Buck Owens? I mean, because whether you're from California, you're from Nashville, if you're into country music and like that that record, and Don Rich is playing, and just the whole nudie suit, it was just to me the epitome of how yeah. cool country can be. It, yes, exactly. And at a time when country in Nashville had lost its way, right, completely, they were putting strings on everything. There were no guitars. I mean, Harold Bradley was playing Tic Tac, which was really cool, but I mean, it was missing that thing, that honky tonk. And out of Bakersfield comes the salvation, you know? And and he, for me, he was, he's number one as far as like influence, like ideology, whatever you want to call it. Like, here's how you do it. Um, you play the guitar loud. You make sure that it adds to the song. You, you know, the twang 
the that whole Don Rich thing, um, it's just such a signature part of the sound. It's like, okay, you take the guitar off of his records, it's half, it's missing something. It's missing half of what made it what it was. And I think, um, you know, for me, I, early on with Buck, he meant so much to me that when my album was done, when Who Needs Pictures, my first album was done, um, I sent a copy of it to him through the record label as it was coming out. And I just sent a note with it through through uh, one of the record label reps that knew him out there in, in Bakersfield and said, I hope you hear a bit of yourself in this because um, you are the, the reason I do this, you know. Right. So he took it and listened to it all the way through. I And then he called me, which was the most mind-blowing. Actually, he didn't call me at first. It was his guy, Jerry Hufford, that worked for him, who since became a close friend of mine. And Jerry calls me and says, Buck has listened to the whole album, Brad, and um, he has a question for you. Who played the guitar? And I said, I did. He said, really? And I said, yeah, every guitar on there is me. And he goes, well, Buck says bullshit. And he'd like for you to come out here and prove it. So wow. I got on a plane and flew to Bakersfield the next month and landed and set in with him at the Crystal Palace and sang the harmony parts and played the Don Rich parts. And that was the way our friendship was born and would take any California trip and any day off in L.A. And even after I started dating my wife and was spending more and more time in L.A. with her. I would take days and and I would drive up and have lunch with him at the palace on a on right. a Tuesday or something. Yeah. Which was pretty invaluable. I mean, I I really can't believe I got to do that in time, you know? Yeah. And so much so that when I was inducted into the to the uh, Opry, I wore the Car Carnegie Hall jacket. Wow. I wore the yellow rhinestone jacket and then again wore it a second time on on the 50th when I opened the 50th CMAs, Buck had already passed, but it, but they opened the show. Vince sang acoustically, did a Haggard song, and then the curtains opened, and it was me and Roy Clark yeah. when Roy was still alive. And I was wearing Buck's rhinestone coat with a silver sparkle telly, and Roy was sitting there with a banjo, and I said, I'm a picking. And Roy said, I'm a grinning. That was the craziest surreal, wearing the Carnegie Hall jacket. I'll never beat that. Oh, I mean, and it's like, you know, the the thing about Buck Owens was like in Nashville, and it, it it seemed like the Gibson influence and the Gretsch influence between Chet and you know, you know, Hank Garland, and you know, it was all coming flowing down from Kalamazoo, and it was it was a lot of a lot of bebop happening as well in within you know, and it, to me, it's like when you see Buck Owens and you see Don Ritchie, you're like man, that was Leo's territory. You know, he oh, would yeah. drive those sparkle things up from, from Fullerton and it'd be like, now you're my guys. And it was the same thing. I, I mean, I, I owned for a while Eldon Chamblin's Gold Strat. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And I own um, I own uh, uh, Howard Reed's black guitar, which is down at the Ryman. Yes. Which is, which is 12 pounds of fun, by the way, if you ever want to. Is wanna, it really? It's 12 <laughs> the heaviest freaking Strat in the world. I bought it How from, is that 12? How, you can't even put enough metal on a Stratocaster to get it to be 12 pounds. It hung on my wall as a guitar player's collector's choice. I idolized the guitar as a kid when I was in 2011. <laughs> it came up for sale. I was, no, it was 2014. It came up for sale. It was the first time I played the Ryman. I went to Gruen's. I picked it up. I couldn't be more excited. This is big time. 
for Joe B. There's a couple of people that want to take pictures. Groon brings a guitar. It's sitting on the table. There it is. I, I, I vitalized this thing for 25 years. I go, fellas, we'll take a picture in one second. This is a moment. I go to pick up the guitar. And you have a reasonable expectation of what a Stratocaster will weigh. Wrong. Right. It, it is 12 pounds of, <laughs> of pure. That's heavy for a Les Paul. That's not even. That's craziness. It's it's most of those solid colors from the 50s. Leo, uh, the Homer Haynes gold strat, what I've played, that's 12 pounds. The Shamblin was 10. And maybe it reads like a 10 and a half or 11, but it, it is, it is, you're, you're shockingly surprised. Tell wow. me, about, tell me about um, TV. How do you, I mean, you do such a great job in the CMAs, you know, with, 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 uh, you know, Carrie Underwood and, and, and do you enjoy the TV process? Cause it gets a little tedious every once, you know, like the yeah. few times I've dealt with that kind of world. It, it's, it's a long day. It can be. Yeah. I, I like it when I have some say in it and control. I don't love the things that you, you show up and you're like, Oh, what have I gotten into? But luckily for me, I've gotten into uh, a lot of situations where I do get control. Like the, I did a, a TV special for ABC last year called Brad Paisley thinks he's special. Um, and, uh, it went great because they really let me do what I really wanted to do. And it was, it was a blast. I mean, Carrie Underwood and I did goofy stuff. I did a thing with the Jonas brothers where they sang one of my songs and I sang one of theirs and, Another one with um, collaborated with Darius. We went to Tootsie's and played with Hootie and the Blowfish. And and then there were the jokes and the things thrown in and the bits that we did. And I love that kind of writing. It's really the same muscle as writing a funny song. Um, right. It's kind of a little three-act play type stuff. And um, I like that when when I get, you know, I, I don't know if I could handle the, the TV thing where it's like you show up, they hand you the script. That's never been my thing. And I can't, and I guess and you, you and I are probably similar in this way. It's like when it comes to certain things, you think, you know, better <laughs> and you're like, you know what I mean? And a lot of times you're right. Like it's, it's the chips on the shoulders, you know? Yeah. But it's like, I, I don't think that's that good. It's like, and somebody's written it and gotten paid to do it. And you're like, I don't know. I mean, they're like, no, 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 this, this will work. And it's like, Okay. But yeah. when they say to when they say in any situation where it's like, what would you do? And I'm like, well, here's what I would do. That's yeah. always going to work better. And so I love that. Right. You know, I mean, it's it's my, you know, I have a weird. It gets me in trouble sometimes. I have a very weird sense of humor. It's it's very dry. It's very out. Me too. I get in trouble just as much as you do, maybe more. I bet. And and sometimes I type things that I shouldn't have said and, and vice you know it, but it, but it, I get a chuckle and then people you know my my favorite kind of joke is the ones that they say I, I didn't get it I go good that means I uh, yeah you nailed it yeah, right. somebody got it on a deeper level than than anybody you know right right well my my wife uh, my wife's a good barometer she's uh, she's really good at telling me that could be better. And also, if I make her laugh, it, it's it. That's that's the one. Exactly. Well, that's, I mean, that's your tough audience right there. I mean, I've I've written her so many songs recently that she's passed on. Mm -hmm. You know, now pass. What else you got? <laughs> you know, it's it's good to. It's like they get tougher as audiences, don't they? As time goes by. Yeah, my my ex girlfriend. She's like I, what I thought was gold. She would just start rolling her eyes. Oh yeah. I, I, you've been there, done that. 
One thing yeah. I, want, I wanted to ask you about that I read that I, I recently took a road trip to help my friend Eric Gales on his live stream pay-per-view. And it was 700 miles down and back to Nashville because I didn't want to stay at a hotel and wanted to be as safe as I possibly could, not only for them and for me. So I yeah. just get in the car and I turn the radio on. Like I'm going to, from Classic Rock Station to Classic Rock Station. And Huey Lewis, oh, boy. The, power, the Power of Love, I probably heard four times. And I was this was just literally a week ago or less. Still holds up, too. And I go, man, that guitar solo. I know. Chris Hayes. Yes. And I was doing some reading before this, and you mentioned in Rolling Stone magazine about that particular solo and Chris Hayes. And I go, you know what? I criminally underrated guitar player. Criminally. Criminally. Like the right play any jazz blues thing. Like that those records, when you listen and you go back to any of them, if this is it. Yeah. You know, if this is it, you know, and the tone and the the like, I mean, the taste of it and the way that he would find this lick that would make something pop. I mean, uh, yeah, I've, I've, he's come to concerts for me out. He lives out in the Pacific Northwest now, and um, he's come out and brought his son to a couple of concerts. And um, I just pick his brain. It's like, I'm like, what did you play through for the Power of Love solo? Cause I couldn't tell you, I'm not sure. Like it could have been anything back then. I mean, it's just as likely a boogie preamp as it is a, an amp. He said, no, I think that's a deluxe cranked up. It's just so, I, I still remember it. It's like the, the, I think it's like, like the, uh, you know, and it's like, I, I don't know. It's like, I don't, I, it's just crazy to me. It's the blues foil in the in, in, in the right. in the song. It's it's the it's it's like the reason why Tommy Bolin worked so well on the Billy Cobham Stratus record. It was the it was the blues guitar foil. I would say like my other my other example of like a Chris Hayes was was um, uh, you know Jimmy Lyon who played the solo on Two Tickets to Paradise. Right, right, right. And it's totally. like at three thirty five, it was just burning. And, right. You know, like. How how important is the 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 session guy the guys in the room while you're making the records? Because yes, it's it's Huey Lewis in the news. It's it's you know it's yourself. It's Clapton, you know. And I and I, I would say I don't remember. <laughs> I, what was that like? Um, I think that it's that it's maybe one reason why music has changed because there's so many times now, now I know you do it the old fashioned way a lot of the time, which is great. Like you'll go over to Abbey road and you will, you know, invest and there you are. And that's a project. I would love to do something like that. One of these days, it's just so often now somebody sends you some files (laughs) and, and I don't mind that either. Um, because, but that's more of surgery. It's more surgery than it is painting, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, I, but I think in the day I, it's, it, I, there's just so many ways that records are made, but people forget that the way you make it makes, it it really contributes to what it winds up being. Like you can imagine, I've heard all, I've always heard that the Eagles, that was a, that was a clinical, you know, event. Yes. Exercise in 
precision and whatever. I mean, I had to be, you know, and that those records are what they are and they're amazing. Yes. And then there's the then there's the records that somebody would make like Stevie Ray Vaughan where you know that wasn't what that was like probably. Yeah, it was like a, I mean like to me when I first heard Stevie's Texas Flood album, I go that's just John Hammond trimming a little fat off the live gig. Right. Taking 32 bars, take 16. Right. It's it was it sounded like a live gig because they had they'd had time to to yeah. to basically, you know, kind of woodshed the tunes. I mean, do you do you woodshed a lot? Do you, do you ever debut new material at your gigs? Mm-hmm. Even now we live in the freaking YouTube era. Like, I used to more. I, like, like what I would do is I would always try out a song acoustically. Like like when I, t- when I said earlier that I'm going to miss or never failed to bring an audience to sort of its feet. Right. That's um, not entirely true. If I would ever do the live band Honky Tonk, record version they would miss it they would miss the hook you put drums on it it's over and so i would always test like i tested celebrity at the first gig we played after i had been writing celebrity and i have i had it all written in sharpie and taped to the wall of my bunk so that i could learn it and we got and we were playing the vegas hilton elvis's old place yeah that's great and uh and I, so I was like, I'm going to try this tonight. So I grab an acoustic guitar and as opposed to the, the record, which is kind of a little more, you know, a little more rocking, but you know, celebrity starts like the, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm someday I'm going to be famous. Do I have talent? Well, no, you know, these days you don't really need it. You know, when you're a celebrity, it's adios reality. No matter what you do, people think you're cool just because you're on TV. You know, and it's like, wrote that, tried it. Uh, they went, you know, they loved it. I could tell. I was like, okay, this is going to work. When I make a record out of this, this thing's going to be really cool. And uh, that was an attempt at a first single. And I used to have this. Remember those first singles or, or album launches, you know? Singles in general, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, uh, I real I was trying to write something that, because I've always believed a first single off of an album needs to say first single. Right. Like, for instance, oh, I've never heard him do that. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that's new. I don't remember that one, as opposed to sounding like everything else you've ever done. and. So that was one. And then the very next album, this was a this was the best test group song ever. And that was I had written this song from the perspective of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, and it was kind of this 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 drinking waltz. I can make anybody pretty. I can make you believe any lie. I can make you big fight with somebody twice your size, you know. I've been known to cause a few breakups. I've been known to cause a few births. I can make new friends get you fired from work. And at this point, I'm testing this, you know, and the audience is kind of like, what are you talking about? You know, and since the day I left Milwaukee, Lynchburg and Bordeaux, France, I've been making the bars lots of big money. And helping white people dance, you know, and it's like, yeah. as soon as I got to that, what do you think they did? 
Oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it was a, it must be a roar at that it's point. Like, they, they just what? Yeah. yeah, right. Got you in trouble in high school, college. That was a ball. Some of the best times you never remember with me. Alcohol and the whole place by the third, second chorus, trying it out, singing alcohol with me. And I'm yeah. like, print it. And that was another one where I turned it in. I didn't give him a choice. I was making the album and I turned it into the record label, said, here's the first single. And right. they were like, can we hear some others? Yeah. And I said, no. And oh. I said, this is it. And so he goes in and hands it to the head of promotion and he goes, and they played it at a board meeting. And they're like, what the hell am I supposed to do with that? And, he, and Joe goes, get it to number one. That's what you're supposed to do with that. Right. Anyway. But it was it was a lot of fun just to to stir it up and try those things out. What's you know? the what's what's the song that you wrote that said it said this is a smash, and then it and it and it didn't become one. And then conversely, what's the one that you thought was not going to be, you oh. know, be on the album, and 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 all of a sudden it's just a surprise like hit. There's a few um, like hit wise. I really thought I'm trying to think of hit wise. I have, there's so many that I thought would be a hit that weren't, but um, that happens. You know, it is what it is. Sometimes it's literally research, and some things like like alcohol was massive, and I still close with it. Right. It's still my encore, but it only went to number three on the chart because, as you can imagine, there's a couple of stations that for whatever reason they're like we're not promoting that. Right. And. Uh, but that's never, you know, that's okay. Uh, celebrity only went to number two. Right. There was something about it that they were like, that's just too different. Yeah. Sing about, you know, give us something, give us something else. <laughs> right. And, and so that's all right. Give me number. I'll, I'll take number two. Yeah. That, it'll work. Everybody heard it, you yeah. know, but like, I'm trying to think of something that really, that really tanked that didn't, there's one that we, they came off of too soon. Uh, I'm so proud of it as a song. And I, it's funny because it's still a hit live. I play it. It's called Last Time for Everything. And it's like, to me, it is so still appropriate. And, and it's still, it feels more appropriate right now than anything. I mean, just the idea, you know. Uh, last call, last chance, last song, last dance. Sometimes you just don't know when that's going to be. You know, there's a last time for everything. You know, and, and it was such, and it did well, but we they came off of it too soon at the record label, and it could have gone higher. Um, but then there was a song, the, the song I wrote called "Letter to Me." I did not write that to be a single, at all. Um, that was a hundred percent exactly what it says. It was a letter to myself. It was, you know, um, uh, oh, you got so much going for you, going right, but I know. 17 it's hard to see past friday night she wasn't right for you but still it feels like there's a knife sticking out of your back and you're wondering if you'll survive but you'll make it through this and you'll see you're still around to write this letter to me yeah and it's but it's so kind of you know written in such a heady way that I never thought they'd single that. How much, how much is about having the right song is timing? Like when this everything. is everything, because it's, 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 it's not only beautifully written, it's also is the society and the con, you know, consumer ready for it. 100% uh, or 95% of it is that, I mean, I've, 
had songs that were way at the wrong time. And some of them squeaked through and then mean something more later. And others, it was the death of them. Um, I, I have one out now that is, was written in 2018. And the opening line of the chorus is, I'm, or we're all in this together. And right. I had written that in 2018 as a party song. You know, we're all in this together. To me, it's all so clear. Drinking ought to be a team effort. There is no iron beer. And it's very simple, and it felt like a, woo. And I tried that. I did the test group with that. That's on YouTube somewhere from 2018 with a different opening line of the song, which wouldn't have worked now. But then when you, when I started looking around, luckily we had already cut, we had cut the track to that last fall. So I was like, I'm glad I have that. And I went in the studio and put, new vocal on it and change the opening line to wherever you are tonight, whatever you're going through. And it becomes more of a song of defiance and unity in this time period than it in 2018, it would have meant 40% of what it means right now to me. Wow. I mean, I, 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 I saw it on the today show, like you did this great video and everything. And it's like, you know, I always say the risk, the, the artist has a responsibility. And to me, you're a master class in that. In oh, that's sense. nice of you. you no, first of all, A-plus level singer, songwriter, guitarist, musicians, but you're also cognizant of your responsibility as an artist. Like, on, like I had this song in 2018. It didn't feel right in 2018, but right now it feels, you know, and you release it, and that's where I think a lot of artists sometimes they don't know how they've scaled to the point where they're, they're at. And then a lot of artists don't know how they've lost to the point where they're at because they've, they've relied on advice and they, and they didn't stay true and centered to themselves. And, and again, like I said, you're, you're a masterclass. At that. That's nice of you to say that. I mean, I, I get it wrong as much as I get it right, but you don't remember the wrong ones too often. And I think that, uh, you know, the thing about art, that is like you can you can go in the louvre and it's it, nothing's changed in the sense that some of those guys were ahead of their time <laughs> right <laughs> some of them made a good living most of them were ahead of their time right. you know da vinci they weren't all da vinci's you know paid good money to make great art and you know they but they're all in the louvre right so it's the difference being like can you somehow be be the da vinci or the michelangelo that gets paid something to do what you love to do and to do something worthwhile. And there is an art to timing. I, I mean, I feel for some of these guys that never, cause the, as you and I both know, there's guys down on Broadway. Well, not right now, but there were guys down on Broadway playing music that, um, that are better than nine out of 10 people on the radio. And they may never, the stars may never align. Right. It's, it, it's, there's a lot to it. There's a there's a totality of being an artist, and there's 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 a lot more than just learning how to play and and stuff like that. Brad, I honestly I I can never repay this to you. I mean, like this is so yeah, much you can't. No, yeah, you can we got it? We got a jam at some point coming up. We got a jam when it, when when all this blows over. We get the te- let's break the tellies out. I mean, let's play really loud somewhere live. Let's go. When as soon as they 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 allow it to happen, let's go somewhere in town, some club, and just set up and play and uh, and come up with a band name and call it something. Right, and 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 we'll, and we'll bring twins. We'll call it BJ. 
Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, we'll, you know. we'll, we'll be twin reverbs, and we'll see if if the sound man tells us to turn down the BJ experience. The BJ, <laughs> <laughs> love it. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much, Brad Paisley, ladies and gentlemen. This has been live at Nerdville once again. A supreme honor. Joe, keep doing what you're doing. You are a bright light, my Thanks. friend. <laughs>